One gift that never gets returned? Trick question. It's three gifts, beer, wine, and spirits. And with Drizzly, you can send the gift of drinks right to your loved one's doors. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and holiday spirits, then get them delivered right to that lucky someone's door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code JINGLE at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. What's up, guys? This is Intuition, and you're listening to Kinda Neat. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, We're coming here from... Cosmic Zoo Studios out in Atwater Village, run by the magnanimous Daddy Kev and uh, No Can Do. Uh, I appreciate them using the space, uh, or letting me use the space as always. And uh, let's see, what has been happening this weekend uh, on Saturday? I threw my first show that I've played in LA since uh, June of 2012. It's the first time I performed in LA for, you know, over six months, over eight months. And, uh, it was such a great success. I really want to thank everybody that was involved. If you're listening, uh, and if you weren't there to let you know, I I was just wanting to curate a show that I would want to go to, uh, as a rap fan. When I was, when I was a youngster and a rap fan, I mean, I'm still a rap fan. Don't get me wrong. But when I was a youngster, really, really about that show life and going to shows twice a week, paying full price to get in, the best places to to see shows were small rooms where uh, you got FaceTime with the artist and uh, it wasn't a bunch of acts on stage. So I just had a couple of my close friends play. My buddy Coolroy came out and then I had uh, Adam Weiss and uh, Romo from Ham on Everything. They came out and performed as Barangadang and did some DJ stuff. And um, huge shout out to the Church of Fun for hosting us. It was such an amazing success. You know, I've never tried to headline shows in LA. I've just kind of played my role and I've been paying my dues for years now. Uh, and just kind of utilizing this idea that if I get in front of a crowd, I'll win them over. So I've always kind of looked to do opening act stuff. I've been the opening act. I've opened for everyone, you know? And so I decided it was just time to try and test the waters and throw my own show. And, you know, I didn't know if even 50 people would show up. It was a, it was a tiny room that I thought could fit a hundred. And it turns out that 165 people came out. Um, and it was amazing. You know, uh, I don't know when these podcasts are going to come out cause we're, we're just starting off, but, uh, so this might be like three weeks or a month in the past when I'm saying this, but I had just released Ain't the Blues, a new video on my YouTube channel, two days prior to the show, and so many people knew all the lyrics and were singing along. It was just really overwhelming. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I'm not sitting here trying to toot my own horn. I'm just being appreciative that you guys came out. I, thank you so much. Um, getting into the show today... Uh, James, no can do. He has a podcast as well. Shout out to shots fired podcast on Earwolf. Um, check it out. It's him and Jeff Weiss. I enjoy the show. Uh, subscribe to them on iTunes. They had a show the other week. It was actually when we were filming the video for ain't the blues. Uh, it was with, uh, Kyle gray avocado. We were driving back from the mammoth area where we filmed it. And we listened to the podcast that he did with, Cadillac Ron and disaster. And I just thought, man, Cadillac really sounds like comfortable, uh, being interviewed. And, and, um, you know, that one was more geared towards the battle side of his stuff. And I was just thinking, man, what, why did I never have caddy on 
the old podcast that I used to do because he is a very interesting dude. He's had a really uh, colorful and troubled and, you know, sometimes very, very dark past. And uh, I invited him to come on the show knowing that, um, you know, we don't know each other that well, but we are comfortable enough around each other where I know that he wouldn't be uh, offended by me digging around a little bit. And um, it just went great. It went so great that we actually turned it into a two-parter because we ended up doing, we ended up having a two-hour conversation and I was not bored for a single second of it. So I hope in listening to this, you guys learn a lot about my friend. Uh, his name's Robert Paulson. He goes by Cadillac Ron. I think you guys are going to learn a lot about him as a human. And I think um, learning that, learning about him as a human is going to make you understand his work more and his, his uh, it's going to make you understand his art. It's going to make you understand his image. And I hope that it makes you a fan. Um, he's a really great guy and I, and I just hope the best for him. And this interview is probably one of the most intense that I've ever done. And it was just uh, enthralling the whole time I was on the edge of my seat. So tune in, uh, stay, stay put. This is uh, Cadillac Ron. What have you been up to? Shit, man. Just uh, trying to finish a couple of new musical projects. Mm-hmm. Me and Serp are doing an album, and we're almost done with that. And then, you know, got all these battle shit happening, and which, yeah. which I'm not really excited about, but that's like basically seems to be the way to get the most money right now. Are you and Serp both uh, rapping on the project, or is he producing and you're rapping? I'm mainly rapping, but he's he's featured on a couple tracks, and then he produced all the songs. How long have you guys been working on that? We started like three weeks ago and we're almost finished. And that was like what our whole thing was just like, because we've been writing together for like seven years, but uh, we never do anything with the shit. We just like record dope shit and never release it. So I'm like, let's just get in real quick and fucking knock out a record in like a couple weeks. Really fast? Yeah. What's up with the battle shit? Are you trying to like ease out of it slowly or are you still into it? I mean, I enjoy doing it. You know, it's just like... I just kind of realized early on that I didn't have aspirations to be like the best battle rapper in the world. So I kind of see like other than getting paid for it, it's like, what's the point really? Mm-hmm. Like if I wasn't getting paid, I wouldn't be doing it. So it's kind of this trap, you know, mm-hmm. cause the battles pay more than shows typically. And so it's like, I got two battles in one week in March and I'm going to make more money than I would at playing you know, three shows in anywhere else. So it's like, I'm, you know, it's just kind of trap, you know, but I'm not really excited about any of the people I battle. And like, I don't, I don't get that like excitement about it. Cause if you're battling someone dope, you're like afraid that they're going to win. And if you're battling someone that's fucking sucks, it's just like, uh, so I think it's cool to find that kind of middle ground, but are you still uh, excited about making music? Yeah, that's, like, the only thing that still uh, really, like, gives me any, like, motivation, yeah. you know. I think, like, especially if when you write something good, it's like, if I write some something cool for a battle, I don't get that same, like, oh, man, this is so tight. It's going to be, like, a battle doesn't have the replay value of a song. And that's, like, writing a good battle and having people 
The only place you're going to get like commended for that is at a battle where some fan is like, "Oh man, that 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 line you had against Absurd was so tight." And like with music, I get it's like people are still sending me messages about songs I wrote five years ago, or even shit that I didn't even know they heard, and they're like, "Yo, that song changed my life," or that song reminds me of me and my girlfriend. You know, like every time I hear that song, it's like. And that's the shit that as the I think as an artist, that's like the biggest compliment you can get, you know. It's just a lot more uh, gratifying creatively than, uh, yo, man, you're really good at calling that guy a faggot. Yeah, it's like we're entertainers, you know, but there's also such like a dark side to music where it's like a lot. Of, I mean, we'd be doing this if we weren't entertaining anyone either. That's what people don't understand is like if there wasn't an audience, like the artist is still alone somewhere in a studio creating you know, because I was writing music way before anyone was listening to it. And I'll be writing music until, you know, hopefully until I'm not inspired to, you know. And uh, I've always thought pain is like the biggest motivator. So it's like, you know, I think to relate to people on that level, all of my favorite artists are people that were able to do that. So music is like a catharsis for you? Absolutely. It's how you work through shit? Yeah. What other projects are you working on besides the surf shit? That's pretty much it. I mean, I'm, I got like uh, a couple other producers I'm working with, um, like me and this dude Nick Nicotine, um, who's done a lot of work with like Little Debbie and Riff Raff and Dirt Nasty, uh, Andre Legacy, and all those dudes. Uh, we got like three songs into an EP that we're working on. He did the uh, the Nito beat, right? Yeah, that's his like claim to fame. Yeah, he's yeah. like, no, that beat's hard. He's like the producer of Nito. It's like what it says on his. Uh, <laughs> but like, if you produce a song that gets two million views on YouTube, then yeah, you deserve some shine. You should say I produced that song in your bio on Twitter. But but he's got like, I mean, to, in my opinion, that wasn't even his tightest beat. Like he's a real talented producer. And he's just he's doing a bunch of shit with all those guys, and uh, we had met and started doing a few songs, and then we're you know probably do a couple more and put out an EP. Nice. So that's cool. How long have you been making music? I started really rapping like I think it was like '96, and uh, you know just freestyling with the homies or whatever. And I didn't start recording recording until like '97, and. Uh, but I wasn't really interested in, I wasn't, I was so like, I went, I was in that like honeymoon period with rap where it was like, I wasn't even caring about recording. You just write all the time. When you, I feel like when you first start rapping, it's like, man, you're just writing no matter where the fuck you're at and you don't care if you have a beat to listen to. It's right. just like, you just want to get shit off. Yeah. And that was a trip writing, like writing with no beat back in, like I, I didn't write to a beat for like 10 years not knowing how to count bars or anything like going to a studio and they're like to a 16 and i'm like what <laughs> and i'd literally just rap until the beat until the beat changes and then put like a line and be like all right that's because i would write no structure no anything no chorus just like pages and pages and then try and fit it all together and uh, i didn't even have an interest in like writing songs either i just was like just writing and uh you know, freestyling all the time. And that that lasted for, like, a really long time. Like, that was, like, three years. Who were the homies that you started with? They were all kids that I went to high school with. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Harvard-Westlake. It's, like, a really rich private school in 
Studio City. Is that where you're from originally? No, I'm from Hollywood. What brought your folks out to Hollywood? Well, we I was born in New York, and my dad was working for this magazine. My parents are writers, and uh, you know he he had to move out here for business. So, me and my two brothers and moved out here with. Uh, my mom and dad when we were young. I think I was about four. Oh, so you just grew up in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, we lived in Venice for a minute, and then we moved basically to Melrose and Highland. So I grew up on Melrose wow. from the time I was, like, five years old. What's it like growing up in that neighborhood? It's interesting, man, because, like, they, this area is called Hancock Park. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have actually, like, criticized me because they're like, oh, you're from Hancock Park. You're a rich kid from Hancock Park. And uh, Hancock Park is this, like, very interesting area because it's – it is a really affluent neighborhood. There's a – it's, like, predominantly, like, Orthodox Jewish. Uh, now it's a lot of, like, white people or whatever. I mean, not that Jews aren't white, but you know what I'm saying, like, waspy types. But uh, it's surrounded by L.A., L.A. Like, it's right in the middle of everything. So while you are growing up in – uh, a really nice area. You might know your neighbors, etc. You can walk a couple blocks and get in some trouble. Any, yeah, I mean, you know, like, you could literally, like, when we were skating on Melrose, you back in the day, you used to get jacked. Cars still get broken into. I'm not saying it's like growing up in a, a rough neighborhood by any means, but you're in the city. And that's why I think a lot of the people I knew coming from that area still ended up gravitating towards the kind of street culture like graffiti art, skateboarding, and music, because Melrose is like, the, that was the shit when I was coming up, and that was it. every day after school, we'd go to Melrose, and that's where you smoke weed and go to beat nonstop, listen to music, and see all the graffiti kids, skateboarders, and, you know, the gang members here and there, and, you know, you just kind of got that influence still in your life. You weren't, like, off-protected entirely in the little bubble, you know? Beyond that, I mean, in... The 80s were a decadent time, and being in Hollywood, it's like even the people that that were doing well were probably getting into some shit, too, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, I mean, uh, it was a trip. Also, like, going to private high school was like, you know, those kids all had money. And, like, that was, like, there's a big, I think sometimes that's even more of a disadvantage because they could do whatever they wanted, you know. And these kids, like, I thought... I thought I was poor going to school with these kids because these kids were getting, like, fucking brand-new Yukon trucks when they turned 16, and I got, like, my uncle's Volvo, and I was, like, I'm, like I felt like I was poor because, you know, and it was, like, I, it took me going out, like, leaving California to realize, like, how prosperous my family had been, you know, because when you grow up in this environment, it's, like, the super rich. If that's who you're surrounded by, it's easy to feel, like, less than, you know, you're, like, fuck, man. And all those kids could buy drugs and fucking, you know, it was like everywhere I went, kids were fucking getting active. It didn't really matter, especially in that time. It was like the mid-90s, you know, super rave culture and fucking just partying and like, you know, just fucking was this perfect storm of chaos. What magazine was your dad writing for? The Economist. Oh, The Economist. Yeah. No kidding. Is he still writing? He was actually running their advertising department on the West Coast, and uh, he worked for them for 30 years, and then they just laid him off, like, this year. And then my mom wrote for television and movies. Did she write anything that we would know? She was really, like, working with uh, Saban Entertainment during the whole, like, Power Ranger era. So everything, like, post-Power Rangers, like uh, VR Troopers, Big Bad Beetleborgs, uh, Masked Rider, 
Mystic Nights. She was like a staff writer for Saban Entertainment. And she used to write like soap operas and shit. So So my mom is probably a huge fan. Why? My mom loves soap operas. Oh, yeah. She did uh, the show called Santa Barbara. That I... I'm not bullshitting you when I say this. That was literally my mom and my grandmother's favorite fucking show. There's probably still VHSs in my house of that show. Yeah, she wrote for that for like a few years. That's crazy. I'm going to tell my mom that she will flip out. So, um, yeah, growing up around Hollywood as a little skate rat, like what kind of trouble were you getting into at a young age? I mean, initially, everything was cool, I think, through like probably like sixth, seventh grade. And then were you playing sports and stuff before that? No, I was like a real weak kid. Like I didn't fucking, I wasn't like a talented athlete or anything. And that's like, I think a lot of kids ended up skateboarding, which is really weird because skateboarding is actually like really athletic, especially today. Now it's like a like legitimized like Olympic sport and right. shit. Like, but back in the day, if you like, if you couldn't play sports, it was some misfit shit. Yeah, it was like I'm gonna go skateboard. Fuck it, you know, and. uh I just started skating and fucking, you know, then it kind of just was like the skater kids that I hang out with smoke weed, you know, they're smoking weed with my older brother or whatever. And early on, the trouble wasn't really there. It was just like, I mean, we got arrested one time, I think on a Halloween for like assaulting someone. And how old were you when that happened? I was like 12 and uh, like it was, yeah, it was, it sucked. Like my homeboy, like hit this chick in the face and like broke her jaw and uh, then her dad, like, kidnapped me. Oh, shit. Yeah, it was, like, this whole big thing, especially in that neighborhood. And uh, the ironic thing is, like, now my son's kindergarten teacher is, like, related to the dude who kidnapped me. And fucking, so, like, when I go to, like, take my son to school, I'm, like, I, like, look at her. And I'm, like, <laughs> How'd you guys figure out that relation? Or they had the same last name. Because, like, in order to avoid getting prosecuted for the assault, like, and I, I'm on the, I'll go on the record saying, like, I didn't hit the chick. You know, like my homeboy, the chick was like hitting me and I was a small kid. I hadn't even like gone through puberty yet. And this chick was like a big girl and she was swinging on me. And then my homie ran up and just cracked her jaw and fucking we all just ran. And then her dad came through and like fucking caught me and like put me in the back of his car. And like it was crazy. And then fucking to avoid the prosecution for the assault, we pressed charges for the kidnapping. And so we reached a deal out of court where it was like, if you don't press charges on my homie, then we're not going to fucking take you out for the kidnapping, you know? So Was that your first time being involved in the court system and stuff? Yeah, and it was crazy. I mean, we were at this private school and like LAPD detectives like showed up and they're like, call me in the office. And I don't think this school had ever seen anything like that. And there was like detectives like, you know, reading me my rights. I was like a 12 year old. And, like, taking me to the station for interrogation and shit. And, you know, and I was just like, damn. And that was uh, an ominous warning that I failed to heed, you know, because I don't think most 12-year-olds are, like... That was definitely, like, a a red flag, I think, that... Because it was more like that that situation didn't mean... Like, it didn't register on my emotional scale. Like, I saw that happen and then was just, like, numb to it. Like, I was like... And I'm not saying, like, that's... like. I don't claim to be hardcore or like, you know, gangster or this or that. It's just like I I do claim to be mentally ill and like fucking there's just something that doesn't fire. Like in my synapses, 
and like I just don't feel like other people like the fear of the law didn't register with you at that age. It was yeah, just, or see, like seeing someone get hurt, yeah. it just didn't ever like really affect. There was me. no empathy, right? And like it was weird, like because I watched the chick get beat up, and then I just kept going around. I never thought about it when her dad showed up. I was like, "What the hell are you like? What's why, why are you here?" You know, and that's something that would go like carry on through my life. Is just this like being desensitized to. uh violence and like strange situations and like the the abnormal you know but that was definitely the first kind of interaction with the law enforcement and that was was that right around the time that you guys started smoking weed together yeah i started smoking weed at 12 and uh my older brother was a pothead or whatever so it was just like all of our old and hancock park was still like this like family kind of community so the older kids were always around like you know, we had relationships with our siblings, and so uh, that kind of worked against us because they all partied in Hancock Park. So we had they all kicked down the drugs to us, right? Because when you're a 16 year old realizing like, oh wait, weed doesn't really fuck you up that much. It's like giving it to your 13 year old brother doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Yeah. So it's like that's how we all got turned on, and then real quickly we were taking shrooms and then getting people's like. Uh, Again, going to a rich high school, everybody was on speed, you wow. know, like the Dexedrine and Ritalin and fucking all these prescription drugs for ADD. So once we got on drugs, by like 14, we were taking shrooms like wow. regularly and uh, we were getting speed from all the kids that were taking their... Like the Ritalin and Everything, yeah. That, yeah. And then by ninth grade, fucking the girls where I went to school had like lots of cocaine. And because like I said, they had money. Yeah. So, like, the first time I was doing coke was, like, you know, chilling with these chicks. And, like, they were just like, have you done coke? And, like, first period before math, we're in a bathroom snorting coke lines. And I was like, dude, this is crazy, you know? And, like, and uh, that's just, everything was just kind of sped up. And, like, I don't know really why it happened like that, but... I could see that with the city life. Uh, I mean, like, that's, that's, it sounds like a fucking TV show about Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like, when you're 15 and doing coke, like, was sex already around too? There was, like, yeah, I lost my virginity when I was 15, incidentally. But, like, it was still, I think, you know, there was, uh, it wasn't out, like, I mean, it wasn't as prevalent as you, there was more, like, making out and, like, shit like that. Yeah, and yeah. Up until probably kids were, like, 16. But there was a few of us that were fucking already, and, you know, it was, you know, but most of us were fucking the same chick. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I think everybody lost their virginity to the same girl. <laughs> and then, like, you know, but uh, that's a good. I think, like, yeah, like it was just uh, by tenth grade, like it was everyone was on drugs, mm -hmm. and it was just me and my homeboy were on harder drugs, you know, and we gravitated towards like LSD, and not that that's a harder drug, but I think. I got so involved in like the psychedelic experience that it was, I basically was like, you're not on my level. Like nobody in this world really knows what I'm going through because I'm this fucking philosopher king that takes acid right. three times a week and, and dissects everybody's like social, like economic structure. I always used to say when I was into doing acid that like, it's one of those drugs where every time you take it, it changes your life and you realize something about yourself, but then you can't remember it the next day. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's it. We just sit there on acid in English class and fucking realize how much better we are than everyone. And, uh, you know, but I do think like the LSD that I was taking, like 
back then it was really good. I don't know what's around today, but, uh, you know, it definitely enabled me to, like, love myself for, like, the first time in my life. Because I was always, like, I always, like, hated myself. And, uh, like, I used to think, like, this is just an example of something tangible result that, like, happened from taking acid. Is like, I used to think I was really ugly when I smiled. And, like, I would, like, cover my mouth when I laughed. How young were you when you were thinking this? Like, 13, 14, 15. And, uh... I don't know why, how that gets in a kid's head. Yeah. It's like, I'm ugly, uh-huh. right? And when I smile, I look fat. Or like, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. like, this is how my mind works, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, people like latch on to that specific thing. Like, and I was like, oh, like, I don't like the way I look when I laugh. So I'd cover my mouth. And then it was on acid that I was like looking at myself in a mirror and was like, man, I'm, I'm a beautiful person. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, man, like smiling is so rad, bro. Like, it's so, it's so natural. Like, this is how we're supposed to be, you know? I like, feel like I used to have, with my personal experiences with acid, I used to have the exact opposite. with the ba- When I would have the battles with the mirror, oh, man, I would, like, hate myself looking in the mirror, like, on some, like, fuck, man, it, it's a Wednesday night, and you're, like, out of your gourd like what the fuck is going on with your life type of shit you know right. what I mean? it does make you see the world in a much more beautiful light trees look better everything just looks and feels better i agree at that point were you like smoking weed every day already yeah i was like uh i was smoking weed every day from like 14 and uh and i started selling weed and like you know i stayed on the hallucinogen trip probably through like through most of my high school years you know that was like my main my main shit like pressed pills of ecstasy came out like probably by like 97 or something and i mean they'd been around but they hit like where we went to school and from there it was just like you know as i got more into like graffiti less into skateboarding i was i then i was hanging out with people that were not from my area when did you first start getting into graffiti i had like a lot of friends that were involved um, in different crews, like mainly like, uh, LTS and KOG. And, uh, you know, I just looked up to them a lot. Like I sold drugs for a couple of dudes from LTS and, uh, you know, it was like, I thought those dudes were the coolest cause like they had their own apartments and fucking sold a lot of drugs and were artists and like, not like street artists. Like they're like grimy fucking climbing in downtown LA rooftop fucking like just with the business fucking motherfuckers like was it more on like the is like the tag banger culture kind of like I don't really know that much about graffiti I'm sure the audience doesn't really know that well, much well LTS either. like I mean uh, big shots out to them you know but it was uh, it was kind of different from a lot of other graffiti crews at the time in LA because they had a, a much a much more diverse mixture of people and uh, there were people, like, from LTS that were also, like, fucking actual like, gang members. So they had this kind of, like, more just, like, brawlic attitude in general because there was, like, their graffiti crew, but some of their members are associated with, like, some real shady motherfuckers, you know? So it kind of upped the ante as far as, like, a graffiti beef could turn into something like... You might get stabbed. Or shot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, like, just a little more realer. And, like, that was my interacting with some of those dudes. You know, I think my homeboy, uh, Kyle, fucking, he took me down. Like, I, I don't know. some I don't remember the first time I smoked crack, like, where we got it from. But I do remember it had something to do with some of those dudes. 
you know, like, and I'm not saying that LTS condones smoking crack by any means, but, uh, because actually Retina, when he was still from LTS, was the first one to tell me, like, not to smoke crack, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, because, like, I didn't grow up in a, in a neighborhood with crackheads, so we didn't see, if you don't see the negative effects of something, it's like, you know, like, I didn't know anybody that smoked crack, you know what I'm saying? So, when I started smoking crack, my homeboys from, other areas like Koreatown or mid city or, you know, uh, different like lower income neighborhoods. They were like, yo, crack's not cool, man. They're like in the, in our neighborhood, if you smoke crack, you're a fucking loser, mm-hmm. you know? And I was partying and I was like, uh, well, that's not my experience. And I'm just, you know, and this was a point where you, you already had a car. So you're traveling throughout the city. Yeah, I could do. Yeah. I was mobile. Yeah. You know, I was independent in that regard. Uh-huh. And I was selling drugs, so I had money. But you were still at the parents' crib? Yeah, I lived with my parents till I was 18. Okay. And, uh, you know, eventually, like, the crack became kind of like a, you know, a couple time a week thing or whatever, and I didn't really think anything of it. But uh, I ended up leaving L.A. to go to school in Portland, Oregon, like, when I was 18 years old. And, uh... That's really where shit for me, like, took, like, a fucking, you know, shit got, like, way more real, you know. Where did you go to school in Portland? I went to Reed College okay. in southeast Portland, and it's, like, a very prestigious private school, liberal arts school. So you did good in high school still, regardless of the trouble you're getting into? You know, into it was weird. Like, I didn't do great, yeah. you know, like, but, and it's funny, because we're talking about graffiti and drugs and shit, and, like, when I interviewed for Reed... I did good enough at my school. We're coming from my school. Like, I got into, like, UC Riverside and University of Oregon, uh, Boulder. Like, I was I could I was going to college. I never fucked up enough where... And that was, like, in my house, my parents were, like, you know, because they were finding bags of shrooms, scales, weed, you know, and I was pretty upfront with them. Like, I do drugs. They were, like, don't drive while you're high and don't fuck up in school so your parents are like pretty liberal and like understanding like you're gonna experiment yeah they were both came up in the 60s and they had both done drugs and uh it was like just get decent grades don't fail out of school graduate and go to college you know and don't drive while you're high Uh and i was able to like fulfill most of those obligations you know so um by the time I had got, when I went up to interview for Reed, I didn't think I would get in there because in 98, that school was like the, voted like number one in best overall academic experience in the nation. And uh, I was just like, fuck it, I'll just go, whatever. And in my interview, and I wrote my essay about graffiti, you know, and uh, I think like they were just kind of interested in me, like, what's this kid about, you know? So they let me in, they were like, fuck it. And, uh, you know, we fucking tore it up. And, like, that's when shit got real crazy. What were you dressing like back then? I'm curious. Because, like, right now, like, I could tell you've been in some trouble before, the way you dress and stuff. Like, you you know, like, you have a certain <laughs> style to you where, like, you're not somebody... For those of you who don't know Caddy Ron, like, he's not somebody... He doesn't look like somebody you would want to meet in a dark alley, perhaps. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, like, what were you looking like back then? Back then, it was, like, uh... I think I was already wearing Dickies. But, um... I don't know where the Dickies, I don't know how the origin of the Dickies came. Like, I was, I dressed like more like a skater. Okay. You know, like a, like a mid 90s skateboarder. Like, big, baggy jeans, at knee shoes. I never wore jeans, but uh, like DCs. Okay. DC shoes and uh, like big Dickies 
like but old like worn out like not like nice stickies frayed on the bottom and stuff. yeah like worn out dicky pants and like big t-shirt okay. like just a t-shirt like a skateboard shirt or like a fish t-shirt yeah you know senior year of high school i wore a tie-dye grateful dead shirt every single day of the year yeah you were a fish head for a while or something right yeah, i still am man yeah, yeah fish is like a huge part of my life that's like we could do a whole other podcast just about that. Or well, let's go back to Reed College, and then I want to hear about the fish stuff too, because that's another thing where that like completely surprised me when you told me. Yeah. About that. So yeah, tell me like when you went to Reed, what started happening? Well, like I get up to Portland, and uh, I was just like, and I'm not like gassing myself up, but I was just too much for the community. Like it was like they had this like perfect like microcosm of fake world kind of thing going on. There was no rules. Like my first week of school, like somebody drove a van into the into the like quad area and lit it on fire. And we like partied around it. And like and that was like totally acceptable. At Reed back then you could do anything you wanted. People walked around naked. People sat out like smoking solar bong hits with a keg of beer, like all under twenty one. And you were totally protected on campus. And security's job was like moderation management. It was like, just don't let anyone die. But, um, I mean, it was crazy, you know, and there was lots of more drugs and everybody drank every day. And the kids just happened to study really hard, too. But everybody partied, you know. And uh, that's where I, I, like, was really interested in college radio. So I, I saw they had a radio station and I was like, oh, cool, like, I'm going to get involved in uh, the college radio, but I started writing graffiti on campus, like super crazy, like everywhere. What did you used to write? Back then I wrote Cristo and uh, it was like real fast fucking everybody hated me because they were like, oh, this kid's from LA and there wasn't a lot of kids from LA. So and outside of California, everybody hates California. You know, they're just like, oh, fuck you. You think you're from LA and you're cool. And, uh, like I was writing so much graffiti on campus because I could, it was easy. I could get away with it and you couldn't be like getting trouble. So I just used it as an opportunity to just destroy everything. And like, there was some situation like freshman year where the kids who ran the radio station, they pissed me off. And, uh, like I went in the station and I smashed up the whole station with like a hammer and fucking, and then wrote my name all over the walls. And I mean, like I put like, five feet big holes in the drywall and broke everything and then signed my name next to all the the damage and then uh like but nobody saw me do it and fucking you know like i couldn't get in trouble and they were like we know you did it and like somehow i managed to like convince them i didn't do it somebody who just stole your name or something well no i admitted to writing on the wall but i said it must have happened after i wrote on the walls like Someone and the station had been left unlocked, and someone so they were like, All right, maybe it's possible. But that situation like led me, I got kicked off of the radio show I was involved in, or like they didn't want to associate with me anymore. Was that one of your like first biggest outlashes, or like was that something characteristic of you at the time? Well, like, I mean, I started doing like I started setting people up and like for marijuana, like robberies, mm. and like that was like another example, I'd say, of like when you were in high school, yeah, okay. and like. You know, I would like wait for people like to want to buy a lot of weed and then set them up. And I had a lot of these shady homies from that weren't they didn't go to my high school and I would get them involved and like develop these like crazy schemes, you know, to rob these kids from Beverly Hills or like 
the valley, you know, and it wasn't uncommon. It just became more and more normal. Like I was talking about, like the just not caring about people, you know, where it's like if I didn't respect you, then I would just, you know, I'd be your friend up until the point where I could get what I want and then, you know, set you up. I might even sell weed to you for months and then and then wait till you're going to buy a half pound. Just catch you slipping. And, I, and then I'd have my homie come rob us both. You know, the classic, like, marijuana heist. And uh, so that became, like, commonplace. Like, so it wasn't, you know, by that point, you know, I had friends that were getting shot. And I'd, you know, seen a lot of other shit starting to go down. And uh, buying crack in Hollywood, like, I'd seen a lot of, started getting, like, you know. So at this point, my my attitude was, like, nobody from Hancock Park is, like, living like I am. You know, like, I'm, with the exception of a few people. So when I got to Portland, I was like, really thought I was the shit. Because I was like, I'm from L.A. and I have this like real street experience that you guys don't know nothing about. And that's how I carried myself. And it really pissed people off, you know. And uh, getting kicked off that show, then it's, it, I, ha- I was basically like banned from college radio. <clears throat> and uh, this other dude had a show. It was like Friday nights, like 2 a.m. to 4 a.m., and it was like the worst time slot you could have. But he was the only person that would let me in to the fucking radio station. And I just was like, yo, just play some instrumentals. And I just started rapping. And like that show became the best show and the longest running radio show at Reed College in history. No shit. Yeah. And like within a year, the kids that had like kicked me off the station were like hanging out at the station when our show was going on. And like that was my like. I was like, all right, I'm at Reed, so I'm going to make it work. So I became, like, the best rapper. Well, I was the best rapper at Reed because there was only, like, 2,000 people there. And I just, like, low-key was just like, I'm the shit, you know? Like, this is my world. I didn't even get involved in the, like, rap scene in Portland because Reed was so, like, bubbled. It's like a microcosm. Yeah, like, I'm just going to be the best rapper at Reed. Uh And if you're, like, a visitor, you come through, we can chop it up or battle or whatever, but... You know, and that's and that, so being there was really like what my first experience was just being like a dope rapper where it was like past like high school. Like, I think I'm tight, whereas like I'm the shit, you know, right. like now I'm like 20. Did you throw shows and stuff? Yeah, we threw shows. We opened up for like Aesop Rock and the Living Legends and like, you know, because they would all come through and play campus. Yeah, that was like probably around early 2000s when they were super cracking. Absolutely. Yeah. Like 99, 2000, 2001. Yeah. Um, you know, it was always like Sunspot or Lucky coming through, Mr. Journeyman, Living Legends. We opened for Aesop Rock. Like, that's like one of the best shows I ever played still. You know, it was like 500 people in this tiny room being like, fuck, you know. And also because the community respected me and they were like, so it went from, you know, this guy's like the pariah from L.A. to like. It's not like you were the thirsty opener, like people were there to support you because they knew who you were. Yeah, because on yeah. campus I was the shit, you know. But, um. The only thing I regret is that I didn't get more involved in the Northwest scene because now it's like I have so much respect for a lot of like old Dominion cats or like fucking, you know, especially, you know, Sleep, Henri, all these dudes. And I would see them because I went to a lot of shows still and I would always see the local openers and I kind of wish that I had done that more. I think it could have, but like my experience, I don't regret anything because the doing that radio show was like the best practice that was like my version of like the bloat or something because it was like every week and i was the main focal point so i had to fucking step up my shit it wasn't like battling other kids 
It was like all these people were here last week. So, like, you better come tighter than you came last week, you know, because... Were you guys playing other music, too? Yeah, we mainly played, like, West Coast underground shit, you know, Legends, Freestyle Fellowship, Hieroglyphics, like... Did you get into that stuff through, like, the graffiti scene? Yeah, like, all the kids had the tapes and shit back then, and... I mean, I, I'm, the first hip-hop that I really, like, loved was gangster rap, like, N.W.A., Eazy-E, yeah. you know, Two Live Crew, and then... uh Probably about 14 years old, someone gave me the Jizza Liquid Swords tape. Yeah. And then I was like, whoa, this is fucking crazy. Like, Yeah, that's a life changer. That was like the first, when I listened to that, I was like, and I was late. Like, I hadn't heard of any Wu-Tang shit, and it had already been out for a few years. Yeah. And so I was quick to just go get every single Wu, Wu album I could. And that was like, you know, then to J. Rue, to Gangstar, to like, kind of the natural, I think, progression of a hip-hop head kind of finding out like wow this shit starting off with what's uh local to you and then branching out and figuring out the other yeah. regions i went through my whole like you know uh native tongues fucking f- uh, phase you know where all i listened to was tribe and de la and like you know i think that's that experience as an individual is for a rapper i think is important what region has stuck with you the most like if you had to pick your favorite kind of rap to listen to what is it right now i think like Northern California gangster rap, like I think uh, X-rated, Brother Lynch, um, Mac Dre, rest in peace. You know, fucking Forty, like Turf Talk, like, and it's a pre-hyphy movement. Like I'm talking about, like, uh, just gutter ass fucking prison rap and fucking drug shit, and you know, like that. That for me was uh, I got exposed to that in Oregon because the gangsters up there were the ones that I knew were from the south side of Chicago and they had relocated to Portland and they were all working at Reed College like on some sort of like work release program like in the kitchen and this is like I was talking about this the other day how it's like I'm like the only dude I think that could go to college at Reed and end up like becoming friends with the kitchen staff you know because I'm like uh I don't know I just see them in the kitchen like who are these dudes you know I start talking to them and then I'm like these are the real Portland cats. Like, like this is who I want. I want to know, because for the first year up there, I didn't know where to buy crack. I didn't know where the hard drugs were at. I was just taking, you know, smoking weed, drinking, doing coke. Like, So you, did you always kind of feel like you couldn't relate to the other kids at Reed? I just felt like I was better than them. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a curse, you know. It's like when you have that, like, terminal uniqueness, you know. Well, which is funny because I feel like saying – I feel like I'm better than the kids that I go to school with, but then finding solace in meeting up with the people that work in the kitchen at the school. Right. Most of those kids at the school would go, oh, look at that guy's a fucking piece of shit. He's hanging out with the staff. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's just how like that kind of like self-identity of just being like, and I think that like stopped me from having a lot of like healthy relationships because it was like, you can't relate to me, you know? And like the, what I found out later in life was like, my experience is a dime a dozen, you know, like what I thought was like this fucking crazy life. I was barely scratching the surface compared to like the people that I was emulating or the people that I looked up to, you know, like in, in the, in the world of Reed, I might've looked edgy or hardcore or like counterculture, but I was just copying people that like I had seen doing it before me. And, you know, uh, really the only thing that I was really pushing to the edge was music and drugs, you know, like, 
I wasn't really fighting too much or like doing too much crazy shit. Like, you know, I acted like I would, you know, and uh, this is like where like th- for me, this story gets like really interesting because I kind of wrote my own self-fulfilling prophecy because like through my emulation of like this hardcore type of person and, and putting all this emphasis on my street credibility and like before it even existed, you know, um, that's the shit I was already putting in my lyrics. Like I was writing, I used to write like only like autobiographical stories of like serial murderers. And like, I would like, and only like really highly topical raps, you know, like mm-hmm. I would write about specific crimes that happened that I read about in the newspaper or like, just like really weird shit. Like, and so the first people that were like listening to my music, it was almost like horror core rap, you know, mm-hmm. but I wasn't saying like, I was actually writing like autobiographies of Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, and like Richard Ramirez and like, like that movie Alpha Dog. Like I wrote a song about that movie. I actually had just moved to Santa Barbara when that all went down. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. What, like that was like infamous, the Jesse James Hollywood shit. I used to rap under the name Jesse James Hollywood. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, I remember like when Alpha Dog came out and all that. That was a, that was a big deal when I moved down there in like 01 or something. Well, it was crazy because like I wrote. I would I ca- I caught that story and was just like infatuated with it, you know, like yeah. damn, this is crazy. And so, as a writer, I I put it I I made a song out of it, and uh, you know, like six years, seven years later, the Alpha Dog movie's coming out, and I'm like, fuck, man, like I was I should have been on the soundtrack, you know, like fucking I I already had a song about this shit, <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah. But um, it was like uh, up in Portland, fucking. That's when uh. Like, that was my first experience with, like, opiates. At Reed, you said it took you a year to find crack and stuff. Like, when you were looking, f- like, were you asking your other students, like, do you know where I can find crack? And were they like, what the fuck? No. But, um, like, I didn't know about the city geographically. Yeah. So, um, Portland is, like, very segregated. It's, like, north Portland, northeast, southeast, southwest. And, like, there's no black people outside of north Portland. So, and I'm not saying like that's where the crack is, is with the blacks, but like, you know, typically if you want to find crack in an urban area, just go to Martin Luther King Boulevard. Yeah. And like, that's a good starting point. Right. Like, that's, and uh, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying, but uh, after I met these dudes at Reed that worked there, you know, then I seen like, wait, oh, these guys are actually like, I didn't know those type of people were existing in Portland. I had this kind of like rural, kind of clean, like, you know, outlook of the state yeah and so uh hanging out with them and it's kind of getting around the city more they were all into like some shady shit or they were all drug dealers yeah yeah so did you get in on the hustle there with them yeah i started working for them and they were actually working from this for this white dude from bozeman montana who went to read but he kind of created this like drug empire what were they mainly selling marijuana and cocaine okay and uh you know, so that's like, and I didn't want to sell weed because it was so cheap up there. So I started selling Coke and that was like my, uh, like I was really successful selling weed in high school, but for this probably like by second year of college, I had that like little Tony Montana complex where, you know, I always had cocaine and I had what I thought was a lot of it, probably just a few grams of all the time. But like, I just get a half ounce, an ounce of Coke and fucking, you know, sit in my room and snort it all day. And then when you start realizing the power that drugs have, because people want to be around you, people want to hang out with you. Everybody treats you like you're the shit because they want to do your Coke. And, uh, 
it all kind of feeds into your ego and your inflated sense of self. And, and you already had that sense of I'm better than everyone. So that's just gassing it up. Yeah. Farther. So now I'm like, oh, like people need me. People respect me now even more. And I was seeing this chick and like, like long story short, like she ended up getting pregnant by some other dude. And I was like totally in love with her. And uh, that just like that kind of like I just kind of broke off like even further from reality. And I went and I bought a gun. It was the first time I ever bought a gun. And, uh, you know, I just sat in this room for like a month just doing coke and just putting the gun in my mouth like every night. Like just and I was just like I would like load the gun and I'd like put it in my mouth and I'd like just sit there and then just see like how far I could pull the trigger before I like shoot myself in the head. And I didn't even really want to commit suicide. Like I just was like, maybe I do. You know, <laughs> like, I'm not sure, you know, but like, if I do enough coke, then maybe I'll like, finally just blow my brains out. Yeah. So like, and I got so deep into this shit that like, I basically couldn't function anymore. And like, my brother had to come and try and like, get me to come back to LA. And uh, he wasn't successful. I didn't come back. You've been clean for over six months now, right? Yeah, I'm clean now. What was the drug that pushed you over the edge? I think... um it was definitely opiates and starting starting with Oxycontin. And then once I became addicted to Oxycontin, then uh, when I moved back to L.A., you know, it was oxys weren't very prevalent at the time. Chopping them and snorting them or were you yeah, shooting them? No, it was just snorting them. And uh, all of my friends got addicted to Oxycontin. All the kids that were selling drugs started selling oxys and everybody started doing them. And no, nobody knew and nobody was there to tell us. And I'm not saying that if they had told us, we would have done anything different. But if you're dealing with a bunch of people that have no experience with opiate addiction, you know, we all thought we, every other drug we've done in excess and been able to stop, you know, like I, I took ecstasy every day for a year. And then when I got tired of it, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. But this shit was like some other shit. It was like, did you ever feel a physical need for crack when you were smoking crack? Like, did you ever become a quote unquote crackhead? Yeah, I did, but uh, it's different because, like, I would smoke crack, but with crack, you when you wake up and you're not on, you know, once you go to sleep, you're cool. You don't have a physical craving for more. It's a mental, like, it's a mental obsession. You know, after you're smoking crack, you want more and you feel like you need it. But when you wake up in the morning, you're not physically sick. Whereas opiates, it's like your skin feels like your skin is crawling if you don't have it. Once or? you've developed, like, a dependence on opiates and you're removed from opiates, you get sick. And it's, like, an inexplicable, like, terrorizing fucking... Just every part of your body is fucked, and, like, you have to get more. And the psychological terror that, like, precedes the physical withdrawal is even worse. And it's so much to the point where, like, you could have a bag full of heroin, and you're already worried that, it's, like, it's going to end sometime. Like, you're like, fuck, man, like... I have six grams of dope, which is a pretty good amount of dope. But I'm already thinking, like, this isn't enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this, is, this isn't going to last forever. So what year did you move back to L.A. from Portland? Well, I came back, uh, I think it was, like, 2002. Wow. And uh, I was so strung out. I've been strung out in Portland for a year on heroin. And uh, all my homies up there were now doing heroin. How fast was the transition from oxys to heroin? About three months. And it was, like... You know, and things changed so quickly. Like everybody that was friends and we were all selling drugs, having fun. It was like 
this sucks and we don't trust each other and fucking everybody would steal from anyone and like it's every man for himself everyone now. just quickly develops like junkie tendencies yeah like- and we're just like you know and then all of a sudden like i realized like damn we're all addicted to oxys when is the point when it's like oh i really like oxys and like somebody goes well oh then you should fucking try heroin or whatever the case may be like do you start snorting it or did you mainline it instantly like we got back to la and uh we had no oxys down here and so we were having oxys mailed to us from portland and we ran out and it was still a point where we weren't like crazy sick like but we weren't feeling well and uh i was the one that was like i know where we can get heroin and i was with two of my friends who had never done heroin before and uh so three kids all from la one from beverly hills one from hancock park one from hollywood and it was just like you know that was the defining moment in a lot of our lives i'm sure where it was like i I know where to get heroin and so we went and we got heroin and uh you know we snorted it and uh i stayed snorting it for like a year and a half i went back to school with a heroin habit so you were just down here like for a summer visit with plans to go back to school yeah when i go back by the time i get back to portland everyone i knew on oxys was on heroin and so then it was just heroin and were they snorting too they were all snorting and then uh fast forward to the next summer so like a full year later I managed to function like at a pretty high level just snorting heroin. I like I still passed all these qualifying examinations in school and like you know, I mean, there was some unmanageability, but next summer when I got back was when I started shooting heroin. And within 3 months, you know, my my family was like you got to go, man. And uh you know, that was the first time I went to rehab. What's the tipping point where it goes from snorting to shooting? If you're intelligent, you realize that you're wasting your dope. And it's like, so that's like, it's the big question. It's like, okay, I'm wasting my dope. But like, once you shoot, you're fucked, you know? And if, you know, now everybody's smoking heroin. And it's it's not that one's less addictive. Like, doctors would even tell you that they're, the physical withdrawal from smoking heroin can sometimes be worse because of the way it's absorbed in the lungs. But, uh... When you shoot dope, there's a, the rush that people talk about, and that's what you become addicted to is, like, the ritual and the rush. And, like, that doesn't come from any other route of administration. So it's like once you go IV, you're fucked because you're like – most people have this moment of clarity where they're like, damn, I wasted heroin until this point. Like, this is what it's like to do heroin. And if you have that experience, then you shoot it again, and then you never – Nobody I know successfully went from shooting to go back to snorting or smoking. It's just like it doesn't make sense. So your folks said you got to come back to L.A. and get cleaned up? No, I was back here. They said, like, you know, we're not sending you back to school. And uh, I ended up having to go to rehab or whatever. And uh, that just that began like this whole other like era of my life where I just was like either homeless or in jail or fucking and that's what I was talking about where it's like all of a sudden like all the shit that I had like glamorized and fucking like looked up to and like fucking all of a sudden I was on the street you know and I was like realizing like oh shit like I actually I'm not this super tough dude I'm this little kid from fucking you know Hancock Park that's lost on Skid Row and you know I didn't have a fucking tattoo on my body and I'm like what age was this? This was like uh, 21. And how did you survive on the day-to-day living in Skid Row? 
Well, like it started just, uh, you know, probably like a lot of other people on Skid Row, just, I mean, anything. It was like, uh, you first of all, like you have to learn the game. Like, and if you don't know the game, it's like, you don't really want to know it. It's like, everybody's got a hustle and you just have to figure out like what you're going to do. And it, I mean, uh, a day-to-day basis, like you just be like panhandling at the subway station. And then basically like you have to get enough money somehow to get your first, to get high. Once you get high, then you, then you're like, then, you, or you get well, then you're ready to like really go hustle. And then you, you know, you develop some schemes or plans or like, um, I would sell fake heroin. That was like a big thing that I did. And I would like watch the heroin spots downtown. I knew like when they would take breaks, when they would go leave the block for like 20 minutes. And then I'd show up with just enough uh, fake balloons of heroin to catch a few people, sell a couple just to then shake the spot. Um, You know, doing small robberies, like uh, boosting shit, selling shit to, you know, stealing from stores and then reselling it to other stores. So are you just living like out of a backpack? Dude, I was like, like I joke around about like my periods of homelessness, like, uh, but like I didn't have shit. Like I didn't even have a backpack. How did you sleep at night? Like where would you sleep? Normally I wouldn't sleep. And uh, like I would go so hard that uh, like I would just not sleep, you know, I would just stay up all night trying to get high and getting high. And that's the the weird thing about being homeless is like if you're a relatively intelligent and a pretty good hustler, like then you stay having drugs even though you're homeless. And if you're high, you don't need to sleep. And so then, you know, I kind of avoided the pitfalls of a lot of homeless people. Like, cause I, I wasn't becoming like a, a homeless, like bum bum pushing a cart or carrying bags. Like I just am here to get high until something stops me from getting high. And so I don't need a backpack. I don't need a change of clothes. I don't need anything, you know? And initially you go through that phase of still calling your family, you know, asking if you can come home, brush your teeth or change your clothes or. And would they let you? No. So they had already made an ultimatum with you, like get clean. Oh, yeah, I was brush. out. Yeah. There were locks changed at the pad. But they tried to send you to rehab before that happened. Yeah, I tried to, they sent me to rehab like two two or three times. Oh, wow. By the time you were 21. Yeah. And then I, I went back to Oregon on my own, like convinced someone to buy me a ticket. And I was just kind of doing my own thing. And then I got involved in a legal situation in Oregon and came back to California, like on the run. When was the first time you finally ended up in jail? Uh, I think it was like 03. And I was in downtown at the Alexandria Hotel. And, uh... I was shooting some heroin. I had I was supposed to go to like some place to live and like I had ten bucks and I went to the hotel. I was shooting up in the bathroom and uh it was just like uh the cops kicked in the door and I went to Parker Center, which is like city jail in downtown. And I just remember like I didn't call my family or call anyone because I was like I'm I'm just fucked, you know. Like no one's gonna bail me out anyway, so go to my arraignment and then I remember that first time like rolling up to the county jail here that's like a fucking serious ass moment like you know cause this is like when all this shit's coming real it's like okay like you wanna be a badass like you wanna be cool like it's like well you know LA County Jail is no joke that's the fucking I think it's the biggest county jail in the in the country and any lawyer will tell you that county jail is worse than 
every state prison like combined. I mean, the shit that goes on in there is like fucking so intense. And it, like from the moment you pull up, you're just like, if you haven't been there before, you know, don't go. But uh, especially being a small white kid, it was like just that first like moment. And you had you still had no tattoos at this point, or what? I had like one tattoo because now you're covered. You know what I'm saying? So I, that's why I'm asking for those of you in the audience. So you go into county jail as this small, skinny, yeah, like 130 like, pounds. heroin fiend. Yeah, skinny-ass Not looking boy. tough. No, like, I wasn't tough. And how did you survive? What happened? You know, um, that's the crazy thing, man. It's because, like, I, I treated people with respect, and I was just, I was, like, willing to learn. Like, I was, like, I was teachable. And so I identified with my, like, uh you know, you, you are separated or segregated by race. And I, wa- I didn't have any misconceptions about who I was, and that works to your advantage, you know. And I was like, I'm white, and, you know, I wasn't trying to, like, hide behind, you know, other people or anything. I was like, they asked me to, like, get involved in a certain, like, uh, level, and I was like, okay. And I treated people with respect, and they were like, yeah, he's a youngster, but he's cool, you know. And... Like, I have funny stories. I had a different experience. I had a different outlook on life. Uh, you know, I was a talented artist. And so they were, initially, I just kind of got a pass. They were just like, nah, like, you know, Cadillac's cool, man. Like, he's a youngster, but he's like, he, he's with the business. You know, he's down for his shit, whatever. And I didn't I didn't have any problems, really. Like, um, you know, it wasn't until a few times, like, later, coming back to jail, where going to jail becomes like nothing. And then you start thinking that you are kind of tough where you get reminded by someone else. Like you're not that tough, bro. Like, cause there's always somebody bigger and badder. And like, I'm not that big and bad to begin with. That first time that you were in County, how long were you there? I think the first time I was there, I was only there for like maybe two weeks. It was just like misdemeanor drug charge or like what? Oh, I, it was felony. So did you get shipped off to the pen pen? No, that was like, this was like back then there was like the drug programs were all like you could basically I had it down to a science where like you could go to jail and uh, basically be out in like three weeks if you knew what to do and like you knew how to talk to your public defender and like that was kind of my MO was like if I'm getting busted then I'm going to ask for a drug program and then they're going to release me and then it takes three court dates to get released and then basically just fucking run from your probation officer fucking abscond and like till you get arrested again so were you actually getting cleaned up for a little time never that? No. no i had so no while, inti- while you're in county you're still on drugs no no i mean you can't really get drugs in county like okay. county is like sucks because like um there's not that many drugs at all and like the only drugs people bring in they're using themselves or just for their homies and uh like the the best time i had in the county jail i think like I got arrested on Skid Row, like, like uh, maybe like the third or fourth time I got busted, and I had my mouth was full of balloons of heroin, so like I swallowed all the balloons, and that's why they sell heroin in balloons, so you could swallow it if you need to, and you can get it back, and fucking so I so I hit the county with the balloon with a stomach full of heroin, wow. and fucking that was like the best time of my life because I'm not literally, but for a jail experience like knowing that you have dope you know like i was the man like and i was like i was like negotiating business deals with heroin that was still in my stomach you know like i was telling people like 
I was already trading for shit and like people already knew and all the fucking pods like they were like you know white boy over in 162b pod he's got dope it'll be here any day you know, we're just waiting we're just waiting on the delivery you know and like other trustees were bringing me like baby. You're, you're just drinking like prune juice to try and get it out. we drink baby oil that helps get it out yeah supposedly oh, like shit. but i didn't get it back for five days and that means every shit you take for five days you you're, dig you're digging through your shit and fucking there's all you learn these little like are they like public bathrooms that you're in there no in that pod it was uh there was like one bathroom in the day room that was like private so like I would go dig through my shit in there, like so I wouldn't like offend people because my silly was this guy Roca and he was like really like clean like anally retentive Filipino and uh, like he wouldn't let you wear shoes in the cell and he would like wax the floor and wow. so like I, I didn't want to like dig through my shit around him because like I thought it would be disrespectful but um, and that's like the so that's like the funniest thing about jail is like how. It's all about respect, and it's like these people that are fucking monsters and animals. Like all of a sudden, it's like if you don't take a shower, like people don't like you, or like if you like you know uh, don't keep your bed really clean, it's a disrespect, you know. And it's like if you like chew with your mouth open, or if you reach over my plate while I'm eating food, and so actually it's all about good manners. Like if you want to like survive in jail, it's like you'd be really polite and respectful yeah. while, while not being a punk or a pushover and then like have really good manners, like good personal hygiene habits, like real clean. And those are the people that are perceived to be functioning, like they're programming. It's like, oh, you know, that's why you take care of yourself, exercise. And that's what it's all about. It's just how you appear. And uh, so I'm digging through my shit or whatever. And then finally I get the balloons back. And uh, and then I had to take them into my cell to wash them off in the sink. And then, you know, I, it's like smells like shit, you know, shit all over my hands. And, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm laughing. At you. No, no, it's funny. It's, a, it's like a funny mental image. And yeah. it's like funny because like this is what people were waiting for, you know. Yeah. And that's like the lifestyle that's like – and then I'm trading some of the dope. So I got uh, some weed and some alcohol and like fucking, you know, I just had this moment where I was sitting in my cell um, looking out the window – and, like, I really, at that moment, like, I thought I was Mac Dre. Like, I was, like, because he has a line in his song where he's, like, I'm sitting in my cell looking out the window drinking Pruno, smoking Indo. And I'm sitting in jail smoking a joint in my in my cell, watching the gold line drive by, drinking alcohol. And I was, like, this is, I've I made it, you know? Like, I'm, I'm the shit, you know? Like, fucking, this is, like, uh, like, I really became, like, all the shit that I talked about. Yeah. And, uh, I thought, you know, I thought that was cool. You know, I was like, fuck it, you know? And, uh, like, I think in 2005, like I got out, uh, right before Thanksgiving and, uh, it was like, I had lost all sense of identity. Like I didn't know. By that point were you just like covered in tattoos? Not really. I mean, I, I had, I had gotten some more. I mainly just went to work on, like, my chest. And that was all inside? No, most of that was, like, when I would get out, I would get... And that was the thing, too, is, like... Because I'd get out of jail and want to build myself up to, yeah, go, cause to I, go back to jail. Exactly. I find it interesting that it's, like... Particularly when you mentioned, like, oh, I was just a young kid, didn't have any tattoos. Because, like, now that you are covered in tattoos, like, it looks like... 
I would look at you, no offense, and be like, oh, this guy has fucking been in jail before. You know right. what I'm saying? And that's and that was like the whole that was the whole image of like when you get out of jail and know you're going back to jail. You know, I would try and create myself in a way like if I would want to shave my head before I go to jail. As soon as I get to jail, I want to get a big my head bald, you know, and uh, it's all about appearances. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you say like, oh, at that point, I felt like Mac Dre because it's like you had this mental transformation from, you know, your upbringing to where you are now. And then it's like you also manifested this physical representation and, 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 and transformation as well. Right. But with that, your whole value system changes. And like once you perceive yourself to be good and like. You know, every time I went to county, like I was in general population, what we call running mainline, I didn't snitch on anyone. I never asked to be in protective custody. So that's how you build your character as uh, an inmate, you know, ultimately as a convict. It's like you're living by a code of ethics and like you that's your pride is like I'm a good they you're either good or you're no good. And that's as simple as it is. In the CDC, you're either considered a good person or you're no good. And if you're no good, then you're a throwaway. You're a cast off and you'll get like, you know, you can't exist in real society. So it's like this becomes the most important thing. And uh, preparing yourself, like even to this day, you know, it's like I that's why I exercise. That's why I like got tattoos is like because I was living with this like if I went like when I go back you know, I have to be ready just as soon as I hit the floor, like to be involved, you know, because you, it's not an option to not be involved. And like, that's, and it, it's, it's a, so that's how I built myself up. And like, that's how I became like, basically how I, in, how I became a man. I think that I met you around like, I think maybe 2008, were you in and out that whole time from like Oh three to Oh eight. I was, uh, the last time I got out was, it was November of '05. Did you end up in state at all? No, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't do any state time in in California. I basically I've been arrested in like a few different states, you know, and I got into some trouble in Ohio. That fucking I was like caught out there bringing heroin into the airport, and like that was a whole other. When was that? That must have been like 2001. When I got out here in uh, 2005, I think like I had gotten a drug program and like like I'm saying like uh, all the experiences of like just living in rehabs in jail for like years basically like four years it was like or homelessness or like you just lose any sense of like who you really are and uh, you know so I like really didn't know all I knew was like that I could rap like that was that was the only thing that stayed with me from my adolescence because everything that I had known, all my friends were gone, you know, all my new friends were gone. All the like normal situations that I had had were all um, sh- in the shadow of this like new. When you say the friends are gone, like, do you mean like friends that you grew up with just no longer want to associate with yeah, you? Have you nobody, seen a lot of, you've seen a lot of people die? I've or seen you- it, like, it, it like both. Like all my high school friends left because I was too much, you know, all my friends from L.A., were graduating college and going on to like be agents and like lawyers and you know firemen and shit and like they didn't want to associate with me i became a liability to them uh all my friends from portland were either dead or incarcerated um you know and it was like i basically watched like 
everyone walked away from me except my family. And, uh, like I had no friends. I had nothing. I had, when I came to this last, uh, treatment center, I was like fucking wearing shoes from jail and nothing. I didn't have underwear, you know? And all I had was this like new sense of self where I was like, I'm not a punk. I'm not a fucking pushover. I'm a man now. And, you know, but, and I can rap good. And that's like, basically when I came back to the LA, like music scene, that was like the attitude that I had. It was like, cause I missed out on all the shit. And I touched on this a little with James, but it was like, I wasn't at the blow it every Thursday. I wasn't, I wasn't doing all these weird shows. Like, you know, I didn't know anybody. I just walked up to project Blowed and like talked to Mike Eagle and never met the dude and was like, Hey, yo, let's do a song together. You know? And he was like, all right. And like, if P- I passed out CDs, like just to anyone, you know, where'd you produce the CD at? I just recorded it with my friend, you know, like on pro tools in a house, like in 05 after you got out. Yeah. yeah. And I wrote it all like while I was locked up and, uh, you know, I literally was just handing them out and not trying to even sell or anything. And that's how, like, you know, I handed one to, like, Rhetoric or, like, and then Syra heard it with Rhetoric in a van on tour. And, like, you know, just enough, like, I, I started going to Juice because of this dude Silence I met. And, like, um, you know, I met Dumb and I met, like, uh, like Open Mike. And, you know, I started seeing that there were people that were around that were always around. So I started going to shows and, like, you know, I wasn't... Uh, but I still didn't feel a part of because I had missed out on this like community. Hey guys, it's intuition. Uh, I'm interrupting the podcast right now uh, to let you know at this point in the interview, we realized that we were running long and I just kind of mentally decided that uh, we were going to make it a two-parter. So, you know, hopefully this was a good stopping point and we're going to stop the conversation right now. Please check out the second podcast. If you're feeling what you're, what you heard and um, be sure to follow Cadillac Ron at Cadillac Ron on Twitter. It's uh, C-A-D-A-L-A-C-K-R-O-N. And um, follow me at It's Intuition, I-T-S-I-N-T-U-I-T-I-O-N. Follow my homie who's behind the boards right now, Ben Shim, at I Am Database, base with two S's. Um, thank you guys for tuning in to Kinda Neat. And uh, be sure to tune in again to the next podcast. Uh, that's the Cadillac Ron part two. Thank you. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hello, everyone. I'm Danny Pellegrino. I'm Jenna Brister. And we are back for season two of a very merry, iconic podcast. We're going to be diving into your favorite holiday movies, recapping them, and going on a few tangents. Yes, and it's the end of the world as we know it. So why not close out 2020 with a bunch of episodes of Holiday Recap with us? So we hope Mm -hmm. everyone grabs a cup of eggnog 
and a fistful of candy. Cook that bird and Doritos. the Doritos. We don't care what you're into. Just join us. Grab your bed wine. Grab your couch cocoa. We're getting lit on the holiday movies. We'll be doing 10 recap episodes. So subscribe to A Very Merry Iconic Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And find us on social media at A Very Merry Iconic Podcast on Instagram. And we'll have all the updates there. A cash recommends. recommends.